Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I woke up at 5 a.m. Put on my camouflage. Wiped off my 243 and fired up my dog. Headed out to my old deer stand back in the pines. Gonna get me a 10-point buck with 11-inch pines. I'm a backwoods boy. Grew up on a dirt road. Well, when you hear Josh Turner's deep pipes, you know it's time for the second hour of Jim Strader Outdoors. Hank and Turner, I think, are two of the best choices that I could actually come up with to be lead-in songs for the program. And at this point, they've become kind of a mainstay that's a signal that you're listening to Jimbo's program on Sunday nights from 6 to 8 p.m., which I'm very grateful for. You folks doing that. We're doing open lines tonight and talking about all things wildlife, fish, conservation, whatever's on your mind. Tonight's the night that all you got to do is pick up the phone and call 571-8484 or 1-800-444-8484. We, uh, in the first hour, had some very interesting calls about Folks wanting to know about bobcats, the spread of bobcats, and uh, you know what it means for the future. Are we going to see them in Jefferson County? And they're already here, uh, especially on the outer reaches of the county, towards the Bullock County line, Oldham County line, Shelby County line in particular. Uh, the Ohio River corridor, which has so many bluffs and and uh, deep ravines and and uh, wooded habitat are a real draw for those critters and they tend to spread up and down watercourse areas uh, just like almost all the critters do deer turkeys everything tends to migrate out of those big river corridors and travel up and down them and uh, you're going to see a lot more of that uh, as you're probably aware if you've been listening to the program the last several weeks, we've been worried about the turkey breeding efforts. The reproduction success or lack thereof uh, has been very much on my mind. And it's been real difficult to get good reports and get my head around where we're headed with that. This spring and early summer, for a very good reason, number one, because of the rain, we haven't been able to observe birds out in a lot of the hay fields and uh, 
pastures and whatnot because they're overgrown. Uh, many of the folks hadn't been able to get in there and mow, which in some regards is a good thing because a lot of the nests, no doubt, uh, survived. But the dark side of that equation was the situation where we've had these rains on a constant basis ever since early spring, and the little poults, if they get wet, are very vulnerable to um, all types of respiratory ailments. In particular, hypothermia is what kills most of them when they're wet, damp, and cold. They just can't. Their little bodies aren't big enough to sustain enough uh, body heat to make it unless their mama, that hen, can brood over them and keep them warm. But when you got rain all day long, day after day, you see where that would become a very, very difficult task for that hen. But if you're just joining the show, I do have some good, decent reports here lately. One from Western Kentucky around Henderson, Webster County area of uh, some poults that had emerged and were about the size of a small chicken like a banny chicken, which was, I think, early hatch. And then um, got some reports from southern Indiana and over in the bluegrass area of some poults that were very small. There were no doubt a very late breeding effort, probably because the first nests were lost or um, the poults succumbed to this uh, wet conditions I was speaking about. So there's a glimmer of hope there. And as we move through the summer and into early summer, the hens will be bringing those poults to those hay fields, to the clover patches, to, you know, the type of places that harbor a lot of insects because insects and the protein they provide are the major part of those young turkeys' diets. That's what enables them to grow very rapidly over summer to put on body weight to head into fall and, and winter. So uh, that's something we'll keep our eye on and talk to you about. No doubt rabbits are in some of the same type of situation. A lot of drown outs in low-lying areas and a lot of baby rabbits where the mother just simply couldn't keep them warm and dry for very long. However, I have seen a decent reproductive effort up until now. I've seen quite a few young rabbits about, but nothing like I would be seeing if we didn't have all this rain. So that's something else we'll keep you abreast of. Quail uh, started nesting here in late May and into June. And, uh, again, they're running the same type of gauntlet as the turkeys, but hopefully we're going to dry out here for too awful long, and we'll see see what that portends. So, We'll keep you abreast. Again, the numbers tonight, 571-8484 or 1-800-444-8484, which is what Brian called. Hey, Brian, you're up first out of the box here on the second part of the program. How you doing, Jim? I'm doing fine, sir. Another pond question for you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, You and I have been going back and forth. You've been giving me advice. And, of course, I've listened. There's been a lot of guys uh, contribute a lot on your show there. Uh, and I do appreciate that, but I want you to wonder if you could straighten me out on a couple things. I uh, I wanted a bass and bluegill fishery. You know, it's getting there. Things are looking good. I've fertilized and lime regularly. All that. 
Uh, I'm considering putting copper nose bluegill in for one. That's my wanted to get your take on that. And I've been reading that green sunfish are um, detrimental. So just if you wouldn't mind giving your two cents on that, I'll put it all together. <laughs> all right. Now hang on with me because i got some questions for you. Yeah, okay. Um, copper nose bluegill, for folks that are not familiar with them, are – a uh, very prevalent type of bluegill that grows to big sizes uh, in the south, uh, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida. Uh, they have a very distinct copper dot, if you will, located almost right between their eyes on the top of their head. And they're shaped differently. Their fins look different than a normal bluegill. And they do attain big sizes down there. However, part of that growth, of course, is due to the year-round growing seasons that they enjoy in those areas. But on average, they do uh, get a little bigger than our bluegill. And contrary to what has been prevalent thought by some of the fisheries managers, uh, primarily the you know private folks that stock private ponds, they used to think we were too far north for copper nose to do well, but I haven't found that to be the case. I have experimented with them in several lakes that I've managed. They did reproduce. They did well. They will obviously interbreed with our native uh, bluegill when are stocked in the lake. So to enjoy a, a big number of them, you have to stock a lot of them to make them a big part of your population base. Um, I haven't found them to be as prolific as our common bluegill, but it's definitely worth an experiment. As far with, as reproduction. Exactly. But yeah. you are going to have to, you know, do a pretty big stocking of them in your lake that, uh, if it, it reminds <laughs> well, me, is yours about a two-acre lake? The little ones in, and the little ones aren't very, you know, are cheap, but relatively speaking. Right. So the big fish are big, are expensive. If you want to put big ones in, and they don't come food themselves. Well, my recommendation would be to get the intermediate size, which are maybe two inches or so, uh, and do a lot of them if you're going to go that route. Right. Okay. All right. And I All know right, that's so a bit bigger one. That's a bit expensive, but more of well, the medium sized fish in my opinion, are a better value than oh, absolutely. the larger ones. Now, I was just afraid they'd all become eaten. You know, I do have bass. Well, a lot of them will become eaten. That's part of the <laughs> equation. <laughs> all right, yeah. green sunfish, what was your question? Well, different things I've been reading. You know, I'm, I'm leaning more and more to having a more of a bluegill fishery than bass, but uh, so I've been reading that the green sunfish are just so voracious in their feeding that they, um, I, you know, just there've been different negatives I've read about it. So I didn't know what you would have to offer to add to that. I'm thumbs down on them. They're not good okay. in a pond, um, even in a very fertile pond. They do not attain the type of size that I think you're looking for. Yeah. Uh, in your particular case, I would heavily recommend stocking shell crackers uh, instead of the green I've got sunfish them already yeah okay and if i can't recall you know i get so many questions like this is your pond got black crappie in it no well, that would be an excellent well, adjunct but make sure they're black crappie 
You so you're saying black crappie are okay, but not white. Correct. Okay, yeah. Somebody thought they were doing me a favor by putting crappie in here. Now I, I don't know. We have caught some whites and blacks. So if we catch what blacks, just put them back because they would do some good. Yes, okay. but I'd zip every white crappie I could find out yeah. of there. Yeah, that's uh, well. I was planning on doing that anyway. Okay. Well, that uh, that helps me out. I, I got my my lime and my dap in, uh, like uh, as prescribed, and you know things seem to be going well. I've got a lot of young fish, different sizes. I'm catching different sizes, so more still catching catfish, but uh, trying to get rid of those. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But All right. I Brian. do appreciate your help, Ken. Okay. Yes, sir. I appreciate you asking. And folks, he was talking about that uh, dap. That's a fertilizer. It's dimonium phosphate. And I uh, recommend the use of it in ponds in conjunction with um, powdered or uh, lime. But you only do that in May and or early June and not after that. The reason is the bloom that it's uh, intended to create is a phytoplankton and zooplankton bloom. It's aquatic, uh, microscopic aquatic plants which causes an explosion in the microscopic uh, aquatic animals or zooplankton, and the young fish feed on it. And uh, actually, mature bluegill feed on some of those types of organisms, and that causes a very fertile environment for fish to grow in. And uh, if, you, if you fertilize later in the summer, so in late June or July, your fertilizer load will tend to go to blue-green algae, which is detrimental and can actually uh, cause a die-off. What happens is if we got weather, a lot of weather like we got now, for example, where it's cloudy uh, for long periods and that stuff can't photosynthesize, the blue-green algae, that is, uh, it will start to die and release carbon dioxide and can cause and oxygen depletion in your pond and kill your fish. So a little bit's a good thing, too much is a bad thing, and too often is a bad thing. It's something you do uh, in May, and uh, you can do light applications later, but it's a little bit risky, and I don't recommend it in most cases. So those are some thoughts coming from years and years of managing lakes and ponds, and I've had pretty good success, so... I wanted to pass that along while Brian was on the subject. All right, the numbers tonight, 571-8484, 1-800-444-8484. Break is presented by SMI Marine. Folks, these people over there do a great job. I don't care if you're talking about looking for a new boat, perhaps needing to get advice about what type of boat to get, uh, troubleshooting any problems you've had with your boat, they know boats inside and out. They're great with pleasure craft, fishing boats, you name it, they got it. And they have expert staff over there to help you with any questions you may have. Go see them. Tell them I sent you. And remember, you never get soaked by my friends at SMI Marine. A little piano music there bringing us back into last part of the first hour of the broadcast, uh, second part of the broadcast, I might add. 
And uh, I like piano music. It's a good lead in there. All right, folks, the numbers tonight, 571-8484 or 1-800-444-8484. You know, we were talking about farm ponds a good bit tonight, and I get a lot of questions about that, and it's something that's very near and dear to my heart because I love to fish small lakes and ponds. I, I love all of it. I love fishing the big reservoirs, the challenges that provides, and the the multi-species aspects of it, and I love, I love rivers and streams probably as much or more than any of it because I love reading current, looking for back eddies, um, observing the wildlife that lives along rivers and streams is always a, a really good adjunct to the outing in search of fish, and I love the multi-species aspects of fishing in rivers and streams. However, when you talk about small lakes and ponds, you are talking about, on average, fertile environments, um, obviously less fishing pressure than you see um, on some of the major lakes in most cases, and variety of species. And I get a lot of questions about, you know, channel cats and shellcrackers, crappie and what have you, so... I'm going to take a few minutes here to give you some of my overall observations from years and years of managing those lakes and ponds and some things, I guess, that I hope those of you who are doing some stocking or perhaps have built a new one will put into consideration. Um, Hybrid bluegill have become the rage with a lot of these uh, fish hatchery folks that sell fish because they grow fast. Uh, They're very aggressive biters, and a lot of people get in a hurry with their fish program, wanting something that's going to grow fast and going to be easy to catch. I'm not an advocate of those fish for a reason. Uh, A lot of folks in that business will say to you, well, uh, they're 98 or 99% sterile. They're the result of a cross between green sunfish, bluegill, and or shellcrackers, and the problem with that is that 1% or 2% uh, revert to green sunfish, and then you've got green sunfish in your lake from then on. So that's uh, a real good point of consideration that I would ask you to pay attention to. I think you're better off in most cases to go with bluegill, Bluegill and bass, bluegill, bass and black crappie, or bluegill, bass and catfish if you're a catfish fisherman. And I'm a big proponent of putting uh, fathead minnows in new lakes and letting them get going real good and then introducing your bass a little later if you can because those fatheads will reproduce in a new lake when it's just been impounded and got enough water farms to survive. So that's some... Thoughts I've got. Let's go to Gary. Yes, Gary, you're up. Yeah, did you hear about the new species they got out of the state of Kentucky? Is a mixed with a cat and red fox. Uh, the, it's not out of the state of Kentucky, Gary. I, I've seen it. It's from um, an island somewhere over in near Asia, as I recall. I did see that come out over the Internet, but there's no – cross like that in the state of Kentucky. 
right. I just wondered because I hear friends talk about them. Well, okay. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. There is a lot of chatter on the internet. I've seen pictures of them. Uh, they have a long tail and look like a cross between a tabby cat and a, and a fox. They're pretty unique looking, but I'm very curious what the DNA samples are going to be on, on that critter. Uh, because DNA wise cats and dogs don't mix. So I think it's more of a name for something that looks perhaps like a fox that's actually a cat or vice versa. So um, I'll tell you more about that as as we get more information. All right, folks, got to go to news break. Numbers 571-8484-1800-444-8484. Break is presented by Paul Thomas, the broker at Mossy Oak Properties Heart Realty. Check out all of his properties at mophartrealty.com. He's got some real dandies for sale right now. And we're back on Jim Strader Outdoors, and I wanted to shed some more light, if I may, from the call that called about the cat fox of it being in Kentucky, which it indeed is not. But uh, I did come across this, which I find accurate, incidentally, report off of the Internet, and uh, I'll read directly from report here. Give me just one second, if you will, as I, I find it to be very to the point. Um, this animal was found on the Mediterranean island of Corsica, which of course is French. Um, the locals know it as the cat fox. It has semi-legendary status in Corsican folklore it has long been feared by shepherds for apparently attacking goats and sheep. I would think it would have to be a pretty small uh, or immature animal of that size that it would attack. But at any rate, over the past decade, scientists have been on the trail of this elusive creature. And now a team that's working with French's National Hunting and Fishing Wildlife Office have revealed they believe the animal to be a new species. We believe that it's a wild natural species which was known but not scientifically identified because it's an extremely inconspicuous animal with nocturnal habits. Pierre Benedetti, chief environmental technician on the staff, it's a wonderful discovery, he added. And here's the real clue. The cat fox, so-called because of its color and markings, is a densely furred, russet-colored wild cat with black striped paws and a black-ringed tail. They're considerably larger than domestic cats, measuring up to 90 centimeters from head to tail tip, with wide-set ears, shorter whiskers, and larger canine teeth. Its thick coat is thought to protect it from ticks and fleas. Only a tiny number had ever been recorded, but in 2008, Cat Fox was accidentally caught in a chicken coop on the Corsican Island, renewing interest in the unusual animal. Researchers got underway, and by 2012, new techniques of attack, attracting the rare cat have allowed scientists to study it for the first time. Scented lures and scent posts for the cats to rub themselves against provided the researchers with fur from it to conduct genetic analysis. With advanced photographic and later physical traps, 
Researchers captured their first cat fox in 2016. Since then, the research team has captured 12 of 16 of the cats seen in the area, releasing them again after quick examination. By looking at its DNA, we could tell it apart from the European wildcat, said Mr. Benedetti. It's close to the African forest cat, but its exact identity is still to be determined. The animals live in a remote part of Corsica where there's water plant cover offering protection against this main predator, the golden eagle, which is kind of an interesting part of that. Cat fox is part of our shepherd mythology, in other words, hearsay, which, of course, a lot of critters uh, turn out to be different than what you hear. Uh, The cat's diet and breeding habits are yet to be discovered, the team said. They are hoping that it will be officially recognized as a new species and protected within the next two to four years. So there's the scoop on the cat fox. Um, I had several people ask me about that, and I did catch that in some wildlife uh, news briefs that I peruse prior to coming into the show every Sunday. So I'm glad uh, the question popped up, and there is your answer. Uh, I was certain that uh, the DNA situation with that would reveal it were either a fox or a cat because feline genetics and dog genetics do not mix. And uh, there's a lot of weird critters out there, obviously. Some of the most interesting to me are some of the animals that live in Australia and New Zealand. The marsupial animals in particular are fascinating to me, kangaroos and wallabies and all those critters they got over there are just really, really interesting animals. The Tasmanian devil, the a wolf-like critter from over in that part of the world is another interesting animal, and there's just all kinds of unique animals over there that apparently had through millennium the opportunity to evolve into quite different type of animals than we see uh, on the other continents. And it's, it's, it's really, really fascinating to delve into a lot of that stuff. But at any rate, the cat fox is indeed a cat, and uh, there are pictures of it. If you Google cat fox on the Internet, you'll be able to see pictures of it. I think I described it pretty well. It looks like a cross between a bobcat and a tabby cat, except it has a long tail. Uh, It's a really pretty animal. So we'll hear more about it. But for now, suffice to say that it is a unique species that they think is going to be new to science, which is pretty remarkable when you consider where that's coming from, those French islands over there. You know, there's not many mysteries connect with them in particular, so I find it pretty interesting that that a critter like that's been there for quite some time and that scientists never have officially uh, located or recognized it, but wonders never cease, as they say. we got to go to break here, folks. This break is presented by SMI Marine, 11400 Westport Road, just north of the Snyder. Go see them. They'll take great care of you. And remember, the numbers tonight, 571 8484 or 1 800 444 
84. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Jim Strader Outdoors. Again, the numbers tonight, 571-8484-1-800-444-8484. You know, there's so many wildlife sightings and unusual things that have emerged and or happened in my lifetime that it's pretty remarkable to look back on a lot of these things because there's critters here, both fish and game, that we never would have had without the remarkable efforts that the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources uh, has undertaken through the years. And there's been an influx and or explosion of critters that weren't stocked but that have emerged. Uh, some of the easy ones that roll off my head are coyotes. We never had coyotes here until the late 70s. They came across the Ohio River when it froze in uh, that time period in 78, 79 winter and have colonized the entire state in pretty short fashion. And obviously you see them everywhere now, but you didn't used to see them when I was a young man. We didn't have deer. You had to go to Fort Knox or places like that to see or be able to hunt deer. When I was a youngster, when you saw a deer track, it was something remarkable. Turkeys, of course, were a huge success story. George Wright, a very near and dear friend of mine and who I worked very, very closely with on the restocking efforts, did a yeoman's task of establishing flocks in counties all across the state. When I think back to what he accomplished in a fairly short period of time, it's mind-boggling, really, to think about what has happened. And it's one of the reasons with the explosion of birds we saw the excellent hunting we've had, I've got a very cautious uh, mindset about how we need to be very, very careful what we do with this turkey flock going forward because there's been some changes and they haven't been for the better, I might add. But uh, the stocking of stripers in our lakes, there was no striper fishing in the state uh, when I was a young man. The hybrid fishing that emerged uh, and the folks that helped promote those programs, a lot of those programs occurred under uh, Don McCormick's tenure as our Fish and Wildlife Commissioner. Don was came in uh, as one, uh, I think he was the first Fish and Wildlife Commissioner we ever had who wasn't a biologist by training, but... Don was an excellent outdoorsman, avid sportsman, and an excellent administrator. And on his watch, the folks got the money and the time and his encouragement to stock stripers, walleye. Uh, the turkey stocking program was directly attributable to Don and, and the green light that he gave to George Wright and folks around the state. Um just a lot of things that occurred during that period have, have had remarkable results. Um, you never saw otters when I was a kid. We've got lots and lots of otters now. 
which have proved to be detrimental in some regards. But at either rate, they're still here and here to stay. The Peregrine Falcon program and the eagle uh, nesting situations that emerged again during that same period were pretty remarkable. You never saw eagles here when I was a kid. It was a rare sighting indeed. And, of course, the Peregrine Falcon program has been a remarkable success. The elk, obviously, were not here. That came a little later, and um, that program really took off and gained a lot of steam a little later. Uh, Commissioner John Gassett, who was one of the primary biologists and, and Karen Waldrop, really kind of spearheaded a lot of that, and and obviously it flourished. It brought some problems with it, but regardless of that, it's been a remarkable wildlife restoration effort of monumental proportions. Uh, Commissioner Tom Bennett was involved in that as well and uh, was actually the commissioner when John was um, deputy commissioner and, and head of wildlife. At, at that time, but it, it, who'd ever thought we're seeing blackberries where we're seeing them now? I mean, you're talking about an incredible turnaround. That's something that's been nothing short of remarkable and is continuing to uh, be very, very evident in counties way outside of the that easternmost mountainous area where bears have been before. There was little pockets of them down adjacent to the Smoky Mountain region and some uh, over in eastern Kentucky. But now those things are very, very common. Sightings of them in eastern Kentucky are, are, are almost an everyday occurrence anymore uh, in a lot of those counties. And it's pretty remarkable if you stop and think about it. And uh, Again, that's brought a little bit of a problem, too. I, I think there needs to be some real concerted study of the burgeoning black bear population and its effect upon the elk calves. Um, bears are very smart predators, and in the western states, it's very well documented the negative impact they have on the calving by the elk. And I think as they look into it, they will see that there is a, an emerging problem with that and with the decline in numbers of elk that many of the uh, folks are describing over there in, in the elk uh, region of the state, that's something that I think needs to be studied. be a great grant study, actually, for uh, biologists to undertake because there's some reasons those elk are, appear to be less populated than they have been in the past. Uh, a lot of folks are... The guides, if you talk to the elk guides over there, uh, they'll tell you their numbers are down. The uh, wildlife photographers that I know over there are very adamant about not seeing the numbers they were. And as I mentioned on a previous program, the fellows that were involved in the helicopter flights where they were trapping and transporting elk here in the last year uh, said that they thought the numbers that matched the 10,000 figure just didn't seem to be there from their aerial observations. And, of course, that's pretty accurate, especially since most of that was done when we didn't have leaf cover 
in the forested areas. You know, nothing can reveal big wildlife like that much better than helicopter transects. And those folks, when they came in here to do the trapping and transporting, according <coughs> excuse me, according to my sources, were very thorough in flying those transects and, and assessing where the populations were so that they could do that that trapping effectively. So those are some things that have emerged um, in the last several decades, you know, in uh, in my lifespan. We've seen a lot. And that, again, makes me cautious and makes me urge caution about things like being too liberal with our deer. Um, I've talked about that a bunch, and it's something that I am concerned about. I feel like our deer herd is doing very, very well in many areas of the state, but it's, I think, more fragile than people understand, um, especially in areas that have been hit by the EHD. If you go over in the areas of the state around Moorhead and Morgan County, um, those areas over there in eastern Kentucky, they had a really significant die-off of deer. Uh, here recently, and those numbers, and that plummet of those numbers was very noticeable and concerning to folks that live over there. I heard from a lot of people that were very alarmed about the drop in numbers, and subsequently they were very opposed to uh, extending the season on bucks over in those zones. I, I was against that. I I'm still against it. I don't see the wisdom in extending season dates. Uh, the argument that was proferred was, well, you can only kill one buck anyway. Yeah, but uh, you need to protect the bucks as well as the does and providing a longer harvest opportunity in the face of a disease dial fat is not the most wise course of action, in my opinion, in uh I've stated that repeatedly. So those are things, as we move forward, we need to be mindful of how good we have it, and we have to be very judicious about the management of a lot of these critters uh, as we move forward because times are changing. The emergence of the black bear, the proliferation of the bobcat, the number of coyotes we have, uh, Coon numbers are astronomical in many parts of the state, and I think they're a big problem with the turkeys in many areas. Uh, These are things, if you're out there day after day, the way I am and the way a lot of the wildlife managers that I talk to are, you cannot help but scratch your head and want to be very judicious about how we manage these critters. At any rate, uh, I've enjoyed visiting with you all tonight. These calling shows uh, are among my favorites. I love connecting with you folks and providing information that I hope is valuable to you. We'll be back next week with a bass fishing feature with Wes Thomas. Uh, he's been a frequent guest on the show. Great source of information. We're going to talk about summertime bass fishing. So enjoy visiting with you all tonight. Thank you very much for your questions. They were illuminating. God bless everybody.
With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.